Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to Series 2 of the Low Rates High Returns podcast. I'm here with Stephen, as always. Steve, welcome. And today we're going to talk about Predictions. So um, it's always interesting when you read the history of predictions. And with hindsight bias, you look back at some of the predictions that have been made over time and they invariably look pretty silly with the benefits of hindsight. And one of the things I've noticed is they often seem to relate to either uh, war or modes of transport or technology. So if you went back to, say, Napoleon saying, oh, I'm never going to have a ship that's powered by steam when I can run it on sails or Field Marshal Haig saying the cavalry will never be replaced by tanks. And I suppose, obviously, we're interested in investing in the business world. IBM saying, well, fax machines, the global demand will never go past a few hundred or 5,000. And in the end, having to buy Xerox out. And I think uh, we were chatting just before a famous example, a book that I've got on my shelf, and no doubt you have too, Bill Gates in The Road Ahead. There wasn't really much reference in that book to the internet. So if Bill Gates can't predict the future as it relates to technology, <laughs> the rest of what us hope have we got? So that's what we're going to talk about today, Steve. So I guess um, the old saying is prediction is hard, especially about the future, yep. uh, Yogi Berra. And I think if you, uh, yeah, that's right, drink. And uh, But if you understand statistics, of course, obviously prediction is very hard. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, when you look at investing, it's about the future. And if it's about the future, then you've got to, you know, you've got to predict. You know, we were talking about Bill Gates. But the, the reality is that Bill Gates is probably not in a better position than we are to predict. And it, whilst you, you sort of think, oh, well, you know, that's not really true because Bill Gates is an expert, you know, blah, blah, blah. But predicting about the future, as you said, is there's so many variables. You know, you think about the economy. There's thousands of variables. You have to first of all go, well, I have to make sure I get the right variables. So I've got to talk about, well, how's the correlation? And then I've got to weight those variables to, is unemployment 20% or 40% important about the future? You know, those sorts of things. So it makes it really, really hard. So we've been, um, Ruby, as you know, she's a bit of a nerd, my daughter. She's only five and we've been playing a lot of golf recently. uh, But uh, one of the games she loves playing is chess. And she keeps saying to me, I'm, I'm going to learn this game because that's the way her brain works. I'm like, right. Ru, you can't master chess. You know, and I've tried to explain to her, look, after four moves, uh, the, the, the number of variables, I mean, obviously on the Is first it, move, you, yeah, can only, yeah. you can only move the pawns one or two squares or the yep. knights into four different positions. But within four moves, you're up to 288 billion variables. Yep. And it's a bit like that with the economy. When... I mean, you can have a base case expectation, but when you're trying to predict all these different variables, obviously, 
virtually impossible. And of course, every year, one January, we get these predictions of, and we're not going to sort of. It's all name. good. <laughs> or, How's it going to be five years? All good. Yeah, and <laughs> just uh, buy stocks. And to a certain extent, you know, it's, it's a bit of a necessary evil. But we see particularly fund managers or yeah, the yeah. expert commentators saying, "Well, where do you think the stock market will be in twelve months' time?" Yeah, and uh, we don't need to pick out some examples, but obviously. Go on, name names. We'll edit them out later. Um, but if you think back to, for example, well, the, the global financial crisis, and there were predictions that the ASX would finish at, I can't even remember now, but 6 it, 3. And it ended up at three and a half. Not naming names. <laughs> so say, well, we'll make a few enemies. But I suppose the point, the underlying point is an important one. Yeah. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of the content that gets put out by uh, financial services industry or fund managers and so on isn't really necessarily designed to help you as such. Uh, some of those <laughs> predictions are more just to generate clicks and interest. And... It's a form of advertising, if you think about it. I mean, it, you know, let's be honest. If you actually, if you predict stuff and you have some skin in the game, then okay, that's fair enough because you've got some skin in the game and you still might be wrong. But what you find a lot in the finance industry is every month they drag out people and say, where's Sydney property going? Uh, you know, where's Fortescue Metals going? You know, blah, blah, blah. Seldom do people go back and go, mate, you were mild. That was completely wrong. I know one guy who's a who's a who's basically a perma bear, right? Now, he's a well, very well-known commentator, right? He's got basically everything wrong since the GFC. You know, it was like, oh, sell stocks. They boomed. Sell property, property boomed. But no one ever says to him, listen, mate, those, those predictions are awful. And there's actually a website. Well, there was a website. I don't know if it's um, still, but it was, it tracked everybody's predictions. Basically, even the really, really good, you know, experts predicted awfully. They're, so their track record is really awful. Now, normally you would say, okay, well, that's all right. You know, I predicted, I didn't realise the Broncos wouldn't win that footy match. Oh, well, nobody's hurt by that. But what happens a lot is people pay attention to what's going on in the media, to the financial experts, and if they invest accordingly, well, like you are saying about the GFC, if you'd have invested according to everybody's, you know, yeah, just keep buying stocks, you lose a, a lot of money. You've got to be really responsible about what you're going to say in the public realm if people are going to interpret your predictions. Yeah, so for, I think um, we touched on in one of the episodes in Series 1 about this idea that the financial services industry, not not everybody, but a large part of it is uh, incentivised to get people to invest now yeah. and invest as much as you can today. Yep. Yep. And it's a bit the same. I'm sure your email inbox is the same. You get... Every day or every week, the, here's the stock Bitcoin. pick of the day. Well, all that, yeah. But um, like a stock pick of the week or stock pick of the month, you never get an email that says, well, actually, this month there's no recommendation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always like all in by recommendation. Yeah. And it's so uh, you've got to take a step back, I think, from that noise and um, actually formulate an overall strategy. So, what about in terms of uh, predictions? Um, so, it's a long time since I read it, but the, in, in the wisdom of crowds, is, it, oh, yeah, is, yeah. There, is there a case where uh, the consensus opinion can be of some use? Yeah, I think um, what um, Surowiecki was talking about... Is... I wasn't going to mention the author's name because I can't pronounce right, it. Right, yeah, James Surowiecki. <laughs> I think that's right anyway. Wisdom of the crowds, Google it. Really, all Surowiecki was saying is, here's the normal distribution, right? And the wisdom of the crowds is, a, you know, revolving around the average. So... There was one example in the book where 
people had to guess the weight of a cow or something, and the one who got closest won. And, you know, what he's basically saying is for all those people who go, oh, the cow weighs two tonne, to those people who go, oh, it weighs 200 grams, you put them all together and you get an average, and that's usually the closest thing. In the market, there's a saying, it's something like, the crowds are often right, but they're wrong at the bottom and they're wrong at the top. And that's really actually fairly accurate. Yeah, so what, what I think I took away from that weight of a cow example is the consensus, let's say the, the weight of the cow is, I think it was about 1,200 pounds. Some people would guess 1,000, some would guess 1,400, some yep. people would be lucky and get pretty close. And the crowd can have a certain level of wisdom, but only where uh, people have the same information and also they're not influenced by the next guy. Yeah, so yeah let's independent. Say, so if we had that competition here today and you said, oh, well, I reckon that cow is 700 pounds. Yep. Well, I go, oh, I don't want to sound stupid by saying 1,200, but I might go for 800. Yeah. Um, but I've been influenced by you. That's and, right. And I think this is what, in the markets, I think um, we very much get influenced uh, by others. We take our cues from price. Yep. And it's difficult to tread your own path. And it goes back to... Uh, Keynes and um, people would rather fail conventionally than yeah, try to do succeed something differently. Well, uh, particularly, Pete, if you if you look at, like you mentioned before, about the incentives, you know, like I, I often say to people, well, you know, if you're out there, you know, talking about predictions and, you know, great stocks and blah, 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 a lot of it is basically advertising. You know, if you have a look, and I'm not being critical, but if you have a look at the landscape, there's not a lot of journalists out there with deep financial knowledge you know, their job's to write an article. It's not to educate the public. And they want to file a story. That's their motivation. The editor's motivation is to just get it on the website as quick as possible to avoid the opposition getting it. I sometimes wonder with some of these interviews where they get fund managers on and they just say, all right, tell us what's going on in the economy. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. first question I would be asking is, what's your performance boost? Yeah, but yeah. they never do because, as you said, their motivation is not yep. necessarily the same And they same would be locked mine. out. Yeah, you know, well, that's I mean, I... it's a it's a very clicky industry. You know, I mean, it's the same with um, fund managers who recommend. You know, they go and see you know ABC Company Management, and they go, "Oh, look, you know, we're going to recommend that your stocks, you know, a piece of crap and not buy it." Well, they won't be invited back. You know, and so you consequently get locked out of any of the information sources, which, in actual fact, is probably a good thing, really. So a couple of things spring to mind. So one is that predictions about new technology invariably prove to be uh, they they often yeah or they often look very silly in hindsight, but when they're made in real time, they can sound reasonable. Um, So that's one of the key drivers of stock market cycles because we often see new technology is a big uh, theme theme. or buzzword at the peak of a cycle. And obviously, that was something we saw a lot of in 2019. I mean, even just take Tesla, which is just because it's a current example. guy that I know, John Hempton of Bronte Capital, said to me, if you think about the potential range of outcomes for a company like that, I mean, in, in a few decades' time, it could be one of the great brands of our time, or it could collapse under a wave of accounting scandals. Yep. Very difficult to predict this stuff in real well, time. If you think about, you look at the history of the auto industry in America, right, there's been something like 2,000 car manufacturers. So, as you said before, statistically, you'd look at that and say, Musk is a, quote, disruptor, and we talk about that by saying it's the incumbents that have got the advantage, right? GM, Ford, Fiat, Toyota, you know, Mitsubishi, all of those have got much more of an advantage over Tesla. They know how to make cars. Their quality is A1. There's plenty of stuff on Twitter and social media about, you know, and I saw one a couple of days ago where a Tesla just explodes. 
right? And that's what battery technology does. The finish is not as good as it is for those companies that have been making cars for 40 or 50 years or 100 years. And if you think about, I was only doing this yesterday, driving my car, thinking these days the precision is, you know, you think about it, it's pretty bloody good compared to what it was when I bought my first car, you know, which was like an old bomby HR Holden, you know. But that's what I mean. You get to that point where, to bring it back to stocks, yeah, but is, is it fairly valued? Well, no, it's wildly overvalued, you know, because, again, like you say, we're in this era of Uber, uh, WeWork, uh, Tesla, uh, Netflix, um, you know, all these companies are going to make money. Well, how do we know they're going to make money? And that's, your, that's the prediction. You know, I'm predicting great things for Tesla. Good, but what's your actual proof? If I said to you, listen, there's been 2,000 failures before Tesla, He's got nothing other than he, he made EVs look, you know, look better than a boxy thing like the Prius. You know, the technology's not world-beating, blah, blah, blah. So you have to say, well, that's just you either wanting it because he's, you know, a good guy trying to save the earth, but the, the quality's not there and neither is the history. Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't have a, a, any uh, dog in the race, so to speak. So I've got, uh, but as Buffett said decades ago, you don't have to have an opinion on everything. The market, yeah, yeah. the market will pitch you GM at twenty-five, and da da da. You don't have to swing yep. at every pitch. Um, and in fact, actually, and going back to the history of predictions, I'm sure it was once said back in the day when uh, Ford and was dominating the market, the Japanese companies would never get a share of the market because there were already fifteen foreign brands, and and of course, Japanese companies were very successful. Yeah. So. In the spirit of predictions, we mentioned in series uh, one, we I think we touched on a bit of Nassim Taleb, which has become a very popular read. And the first time I read that, uh, The Black Swan, I was a bit like, well, okay. I, I didn't really, it didn't really go in, if you see yeah, what I mean. Yeah. I read it, I was like, well, he's making the same point in a lot of different ways yep. that we can't predict the future. I think it was only when I came back to it a second and third time that I realised just how important this concept is yeah. of the inability of people to predict. And, you know, if I think about my own personal journey, you know, we have this tendency to weave a narrative through, oh, well, I, you know, I had this job at a corporate, then I decided to go yeah. travelling and then I set up a business. But when you're going through it in real time, if you'd have told me 10 years ago I'd be sitting on the peninsula, living at Noosa and doing a podcast yeah, do it, with yeah. a guy I met in Brisbane, it, you know, it was none of that was like on zero. the radar. Yeah, zero. zero chance of predicting it. And I would have been way, way off on a, in a different tangent. What you say about talent is really correct because we prefer stories over statistics. And we'll talk more about this in future podcasts and about how the brain works and, you know, how you get influence from groupthink and stuff like that. But ultimately, the sort of scary part is, is generally what we've done as, as humans have progressed has got more and more certainty in our life, right? And so the idea of roaming the savannah thinking, geez, I hope I'm able to get a feed today, you know, to feed the tribe and blah, 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 is pretty simple compared to the life that we lead now. And so what, what Talib was sort of saying was, look, the world's not completely random, but it's more random than you think it is. And again, this is what happens. Who predicted the GFC? Okay, handful of people. Robert Schiller said about Rubini, Rubini predicted the GFC. And as Robert Schiller said, yeah, he's been predicting it every year since 2000. He's a perma bear, so he gets right, you know, he gets right at twice. I think Taleb, and they used, come and interview him. Taleb used the example of 9-11. Yeah, yeah, If there yeah. had been any 
any inkling that such an event was possible. It, it couldn't have happened because yep. we would have had the security that would have precluded that it. That would have stopped it. Um, and that's the, that's the point. He's sort of saying, look, with the Black Swan was, you know, it's a surprise. Then you write a narrative or you, you, you develop a narrative around it, you know, by saying, oh, well, you should have seen that, you know, these two guys who came to America to learn how to fly a jet but not land it, well, we should have understood then that they were going to be in trouble. You know, that you again, you write the narrative backwards to give you some comfort to go, oh, well, we should have been able to predict it. And it's a little bit like the end of 2019. If you'd have said, oh, my prediction is a pandemic that, you know, nails the global economy, everyone would have gone, what, are you an idiot? You know, get out of the room. Because it's just... It's not within the realms of possibility that you see, but it happens. Yeah, and it right. happens in like those sort of random situations. Well, I remember studying history at school and it was very much about weaving the narrative. You know, World War One happened yeah, and yeah. therefore, you know, we imposed all these uh, reparations on Germany and therefore yep. we, this led to World War Two. And, you know, it, it kind of makes sense when you're looking back with the benefits of hindsight. But if you looked at what bond markets were pricing yep. uh, in 1938-39. It wasn't for a six-year war. So right. it, it proves the point, really, that you know that predictions uh, in real time are much harder to make. So is it possible for people to become better at predicting? So I'm thinking back to Tetlock and yeah. super predictors. I mean, the things I took away from that was, well, we can, we can improve our level of prediction if we've got a lot of data and through lots of practice. But yep. even then we're still going to struggle to predict the future accurately. Yeah, I think so. Tetlock talks about most people are either a fox or a hare. I think it's a fox and a hare, two animals. Um, anyway, one of them knows a lot about one subject. So one's a specialist and the other one's a bit of a generalist. And the generalist is better at predicting generally or on average because they're, they're taking a, a, like a broader view. Kahneman thinking slow, thinking fast, talks about base rates. And Michael Mabalsin, the fund manager, talks about this too and says, look, if you get all the data in, you really want to make a prediction based on things such as return to the mean, right, mean reversion and base rates. And so this is where people get stuck in investing. They get a great run and then their brain is saying, oh, look, we've made lots of money in the past. How's it going to be in the future? It's going to be fantastic. Why? Because the past is fantastic. Oh, good. Let's continue on. What Mabowson says, and that's a really important point for investors, is you've got to look at the long-term average and say, well, if the long-term average is 8% and you've had a really good run at like 10 or 12 or 15 or 16, then it's probably a good idea to actually sell down a bit, even though it feels uncomfortable. I guess uh, that's probably the recency bias in, in yeah. play to a certain extent. I suppose the yep. other prediction bias that we suffer from is priming, I suppose, is yep. the other big one. Let's bring this all together then. So let's go back to a, a famous Buffett piece on the super investors of Graham and Doddsville. Mm. Um, now, it's a long time since I read it, but um, I, I guess, um, and you, you could fill us in on the history of the, um, of the piece better than I could, but um, the point was that there is a certain group of investors who yeah. have used a proven methodology in terms of identifying value. Yeah. And um, as Buffett says, I mean, he goes, he uses the analogy of coin flips. And, um, you know, if you flipped a coin enough times, then you would you would get a, a sample of uh, yeah. people who are outstanding. But 
as you said, if you've got this group of investors who've shown over time that they can outperform consistently, then that should lead you to a conclusion yeah. that maybe they're onto something. Yeah. What Buffett was saying was, and they're sort of talking about it now, you know, the death of value and that sort of stuff. Will it ever come back? You know, what Buffett was saying was, and it's a, it's a, it's a statistical story, and it's simply saying, look, if you've got 5,000 fund managers and every year you said, righto, those who lose, you get the chop. Right, those who win, you get to stay in the game. And he says, after five years of just sheer randomness, right, of just picking the winners, you end up with, I think it's 232 or something managers who after five years have outperformed, right? But what Buffett is saying is, yeah, but they've done that just, that's what randomness would say, right? And so what he says is they go on to write stories of, you know, how I made 10 million in the stock market, you know, blah, blah, blah. Taleb talks about the same thing by saying you get managers that outperform for certain periods, right? Then what happens is they underperform. So there wasn't any sort of secret source that they had. And I think I mentioned this in the last series where, you know, Bruce Berkowitz was the fund manager of the decade from 2000 to 2010, I think, and he absolutely killed it. And he was managing... 13 billion or something. Now, here we are 10 years later, he's like managing $300 million. You know, like he's just been absolutely slaughtered. So it's that sort of thing again that Buffett is sort of saying, look, you've got to look at the statistics of it and say, if I'm going to predict better than average, what do I need? Is my prediction realistic? Or is it me, you know, like Tesla? Oh, you know, I love Tesla. It's saving the world. It's a really great story. And the media tell me he's fantastic. He doesn't make any money. You know, shitty quality vehicles, you know, lots of drama. But people go, oh, he's going to be a superstar. It's like, really? I can't see it. Apologies to any Tesla bulls tuning in. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean? Like you you make a story about the future and then it crashes. Would it be fair to say that, so an investor like Buffett, to a certain extent, is really making bets on things staying the same more so than things absolutely uh, yeah, yeah. changing. So base rate's important. Yep. Um, so I think in terms of tying this back to how individuals should assess their investing, well, things like uh, valuations, CAPE ratios, that, yeah, yeah. that could keep you out of a downturn far more successfully than any expert prediction could. Yeah, yeah. And this is why we talk about systematic investing, you know, because... What, what you want to do is, and again, we'll talk about this in future podcasts, but we're all subjective, you know, rather than objective. And it's why computers outperform, you know, because they don't have emotions. They don't love, you know, they look at stats. They don't look at stories. Um, Jim Simons, you know, from Renaissance Technologies, who's been the world's best investor, he invests basically computer systems. He doesn't do, you know, lots of stuff about the economy. He, he makes it based on probabilities and on patterns. And that's a lot more successful, you know, than trying to pick the next Tesla or something like that. And it feels funny because you just can't think, oh, you know, I just couldn't see a world without Tesla. And it's like, mate, we've had a world without all of those other companies that have gone beforehand. It is actually remarkable when you look back on top 10 biggest companies from 10 years yeah, ago, yeah, yeah. 20 years ago. When you go back to 30 or 40 years, you can scarcely Great believe point. your eyes. Yeah. Now, Sometimes that's due to mergers and takeovers and acquisitions and so on. Other times it's simply because companies have just drifted lower and yep. dropped out of the top part of the index. Well, look at IBM. Mm. I think uh, somebody did a post recently on the, the the biggest companies from ten or fifteen years ago, and all, all of the oil companies were 
right up the top, the Chevrons and the Exxon Mobiles yep. and obviously the current time of speaking, much more out of favour. So I think just to wrap up on this one, Steve, so what we've really discussed today, the difficulty of making predictions about the future. I think if you understand stats, you should understand just how difficult it is with all of those variables. Yeah. Um, so when you're tying it into your investment plan, uh, obviously the CAPE ratio is important in terms of managing your exposure. Yep. And when it comes to trying to predict uh, the next big company and so on, obviously that's potentially much harder to do than it first appears. Yeah. And if your goal is not losing money and just compounding your wealth, looking for uh, undervalued countries and sectors yep. and things like that, rather than trying to accumulate winners. all these variables, yeah, and which yeah. is going to be the great company of the future. Yeah, it, it's basically, you know, people say, oh, you know, I've got a long-term investment plan. And then they want to talk about the daily moves in the stock market. And it's like, listen, you're, you're investing for 10 to 20 years. If that's the case... You want to look more at the CAPE ratio than what the hell has happened last Friday, right? Because the CAPE is more informative because that's your time frame. Now, if you're a day trader, okay, well, you can have a look at last Friday and tell me what's going to go on. But most of us are not day traders. And so that's where things like you've got to match the time frame, you know, and it's it's tempting because the media are just, you know, blah, 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 you know, all the time rather than saying, oh, yeah, the market did something today. Who cares? We're all in it for the next 10 years. Don't worry about it. You know, go off and live your life. But there's a whole industry based around predicting. And that's, you know, as we talk about, a lot of the finance industry is basically like permanently bullish. You know, if stocks are high, they're going higher. If stocks are low, well, they're going higher. You know, it doesn't matter. Just keep buying stocks. But no one asks those sort of questions about, well, hang on, you know, the finance industry often says, oh, you can't you can't predict the stock market. Okay, so how do you think stocks will go? Fantastic, great time to buy stocks. It's like, hang on, you just said you can't predict. Oh, no, it's going to be good long term. You know, so you've got to look at the stats in, in a, a long time frame, look at the averages and then say, am I above or below the average? Because the probabilities will be Tesla might go on to be fantastic, but it's not probable. That's my sort of, that's my prediction. Yeah. And I suppose the other thing to be wary of is people making uh, hotshot predictions. Yeah. Because uh, I think in history, one of the great scams was, you know, you send 100, 100 letters to people saying the market's going yeah, up yeah. and 100 to another group saying the market's going down. I think, yep. I think uh, there was a famous case, a guy in England called Darren Brown did this with horses. He sent, sent a load of letters, thousands of letters out saying horse number seven is going to win this race. Yep. And then at the next, the next uh, race, he said um, to all the people he'd sent to number seven, right, the next race, horse number three, and then you whittle it down. You know? yep. But the thing is, that's the, the problem with the, a lot of these stock picks. You get an email saying, oh, we, we predict this one is going to be the hot stock. It goes down 50%. <laughs> oh, well, well, let's discard that one. Uh, on to the next. And it's like, well, that's not a coherent Didn't strategy. Didn't you sell out when we did? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we lightened up. <laughs> So that's not a coherent strategy for building your wealth. So next time around, we're going to talk about individual decision making and how we can apply this. So today we've discussed predictions. Thanks for joining and look forward to joining you next time. Cheers. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. 
The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.